who don't know, is actually a celebration of the Feast of Epiphany, which is a holiday that commemorates the Magi's visit to baby Jesus and the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. It's a beautiful reminder that the gift of Christ is one that goes beyond the borders of the Jewish people, and it's actually extended to all of us. Paul, quoting the prophet Hosea, writes this, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That can be found in Romans 9, 23 through 26. Epiphany is the celebration of God doing something new. Particularly, as we can see in this passage in Romans, it's him doing something new among the Gentiles for the first time. And that would be us. All of us would be included in that category. And this idea is very similar to what we know as New Year's. It's kind of that same thought. New Year brings new things, right? So we've made it through New Year's. We've now made it to January 9th, in case anybody needed a calendar update. And according to David DeSeno, a New York Times columnist, it means that about 25% of us have stopped going to the gym and have given up on our intermittent fasting. So don't know who in here that is, but uh, maybe you're one of those people who's like, I'm not doing New Year's resolutions, done with that, tried it, it's not working for me. I personally am hit or miss. Some years I do it, some times I don't, but this year I decided to set quite a few and I'm doing okay, knock on wood. Hopefully I can keep that record up. Um, but whether you're a resolution person or not, we can all understand the motivation behind resolutions, right? We all understand there's nothing magical about the clock turning from 11.59 on December 31st to midnight on January 1st. Nothing magical about that. But we understand and identify that we all have a deep ache in us to be better, to do better, to change our lives. And that ache leads us to take a look at the framework of our lives and see where we want transformation, where transformation has happened, where we want to be. We're examining our lives and we're searching for something that's appealing to that ache, that need to be changed. And we know all too well the disappointments when it doesn't happen. And as much as we like to poke fun and feel a little bit better that I didn't set a resolution so I can feel better about not failing and missing my resolution, um, as much as we like to poke fun at that, we can all really identify with the yearning to do more and to better ourselves. As I mentioned, I sometimes set New Year's resolutions. In the past, it's been kind of a twofold thing. Sometimes it's somebody mentions something and I'm like, it's a good idea. I should probably try that. I'm going to throw that into the routine, see how it sticks. And other times it's coercion from a friend. You know, we all have that person. It's like, hey, I'm going to do this. You should do it with me. I need some accountability. Anybody, anybody feel that? Got a person in your brain? I know you do. We all have that person. I hate to admit it, but I was that person 
in college, um, my freshman year of college, I decided to coerce my roommate into a 5 a.m. workout class. Now, some of you in here, we talked about this earlier, some of you, you do that now. 5 a.m., I'm up, I'm working out, and to you I say kudos. I do not do that right now. But in high school, I was like, yeah, 5 a.m., did it all the time. So freshman year of college, I was like, piece of cake. Obviously, 5 a.m. is the way to go for this. We have to fulfill a credit. If I do it with my roommate, it'll be a good bonding experience, motivation. If she's up, I'm up. It'll be great. And somebody even told me, if you go early, it's an easier class. So no-brainer. And let me tell you, I was wrong. Not only did I not show up the first full week, I mean, I showed up some, but I'm, I did not make it a full week without sleeping in. I was like, I'm going to meet you guys at breakfast. It'll be fine. But then I actually get to the class, and it's really hard. I don't know where they found this trainer. I don't know if she was told that we were collegiate athletes, but we were not. We are not. And so my least favorite were circuit days, because the circuit days included box jumps, bane of my existence. Everybody who knows doesn't know what a box jump is. It's a box, and you're supposed to jump on it. Well, in high school, I was in track, so way too many people bust a shin on that, had to carry people off the field, and these were like, they were like athletic, they knew how to do this, and they would still end up hurting themselves, and so I'm petrified, I am standing in front of this box jump, and I'm like, no, can't do this, and they're like, well, can you just like, you know, stand on your toes, nope, not, not budging, just jump in place, can't do it, I'm like in tears, 10 years later, my best friend still laughs so hard about her apathy towards my pain because it was 5 a.m. and I had dragged her there. So after about 30 minutes, the trainer's like, you know what, we're gonna give up on you and let your roommate here do the circuit for you. And I was like, oh, thank God, thank God. As much as my intentions were great, and I thought that I had done a practical thing. I thought through our schedule, I thought through what we needed, our motivation, as much as my intentions were valiant, I still missed the mark. And just like many of our resolutions, they're valiant, we try to go big, do these grand things, but we end up missing the mark. We think we examined the framework of our lives and we have an understanding of what we need to do, how to fill this need, but then we start down the path and we realize we've misunderstood. We misunderstood our capacity, our desires, and frankly, sometimes our needs. And similarly, we have some misconceptions and misunderstandings about the story of the Magi visiting Jesus. There are really two main ones. The first one is that there are three Magi who come to visit Jesus. We would say that that's probably understood from the three gifts that Matthew lists, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But nowhere does Matthew actually say that there are only three Magi that come. And the second misconception is that the Magi arrived shortly after Mary gave birth. But when we see in verse 16, it actually suggests that Jesus was about two years old, at least. And therefore, having the three wise men in the nativity scene is inaccurate. Sorry, everybody. I know we just put up Christmas decorations, although we have not here. We are still keeping the Christmas alive. Um, but yes, that would be inaccurate. However, they are important, and they're interesting figures for us to take a look at because they represent the foreigners, the strangers, and the Gentiles in the nativity story. A little bit about the Magi, the three wise men. Um, historically, they're Babylonian astronomers, astrologers, and dream interpreters. 
They are people who stargaze and idol worshipers from a far off land. Craig Bloomberg says this about the Magi. They were not kings, but a a combination of wise men and priests, probably from Persia. They combined astronomical observation and astrological speculation. They played both political and religious roles and were figures of some prominence in their land. However, the people of Israel didn't see them in the same light. The Magi to the east represent a grave threat to the Jewish people. And there's a few examples of how Israel perceived that in scripture. The first we can see in the story of Daniel, the Magi or the wise men are actually the antagonists in Daniel's epic and the reason he's friends with lions. The second one is um, astrology or looking to the skies for divine knowledge is specifically forbidden in Deuteronomy 18. Third, we see King Saul expels the diviners and astrologers from Israel in 1 Samuel 28. And lastly, we see dealings with necromancers and mediums are listed as one of the evil deeds of King Manasseh in 2 Kings. Jewish literature is consistent in the condemnation of the Magi. Yet the scandal of Matthew's story is that these are the very people that God is leading to himself in Jesus. God reveals to the Magi four different divine knowledge, four revelations. He uses creation, community, scripture, and incarnation to reveal himself to them. In verse 2, we see the revelation in creation. It says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it's through a sign in the night sky that these magi find their way to Jerusalem. This revelation of creation, it's a doctrine that states the natural world is full of breadcrumbs pointing to God, our creator. All of creation bears the signature of its creator. The second revelation is a revelation in community. The Magi show up to Jerusalem and begin asking about where the location is of the new king of the Jews. And at this time, the Jewish community of Jerusalem, particularly its king and those in power, are corrupt and interested only in selfish gains. But nevertheless, the selfishly motivated community was still the conduit of the truth. They were able to point them in the right direction. And in the midst of their rebellion, God still used them to point the seekers in the right direction. That's to say, despite the imperfections and consistent rebellion against God, God is still using his people, the church. The third revelation to the Magi is in scripture. It's very imperfect. The very imperfect community of God in Jerusalem knew enough about the Bible to look, to know where to look for the location of the Messiah, specifically in in Micah 5.2, to determine where the uh, Jewish Messiah was going to be born. The great gift of that is scripture of God. It's been a great gift to the people of God. The community of God must always recognize itself as a people of the book, living out and pointing to God who inspired the scriptures. 
And while creation declares the glory of God, the author of Psalm 19 in verse 7 recognizes the necessity of Scripture. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fourth revelation to the Magi is through the incarnation, Jesus. The Magi's final stop is the place of their conversion, was the encounter with God in the flesh. Christ is the word of God made flesh, equal with the Father in every way. That gives us the image of the invisible God. God has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a moment in which God hasn't looked like Jesus, and there never will be a moment where he doesn't look like Jesus. Two, spat, uh, two passages speak to that, in fact. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Second passage is Matthew 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The scripture is the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God. A quick note um, before we move on to the rest of the story here, I want to address um, astrology and how it plays into who the Magi were and into this story. Throughout this narrative, it seems that God is using the idol that the Magi had in astrology and, and leading them to worship Jesus through that idol. And if you're unfamiliar is a pseudoscience that attempts to gain insight to human affairs by studying the movements of celestial objects, stars, constellations. And this practice is insightful and in knowledge, assigns insightful knowledge and wisdom to objects that don't. It's a textbook idol. In this specific story, God takes an idol and uses it to bring unbelievers to himself. But one instance is not a rule. It's my pastoral advice to reject spiritual practices that assign divine or spiritual knowledge to objects that have none. It's not to say that God isn't making himself known through creation or through nature. It's to say there's a difference between seeking knowledge in the stars versus seeking knowledge from the creator of the stars. I understand the impulse to look around. I'm a nature person. I love gazing at the stars. I love going on hikes and seeing the beauty of what God has created and being in awe. But it bears witness to the majesty of our God, not to its own majesty. I can look at the stars and learn about God, but I shouldn't look to the stars to learn about me. So as we go back to the story here, the Magi, they're curious truth seekers, they arrive at Jerusalem, and they start asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
Herod, the Jewish king at the time, should have been overjoyed at that question and at the news of the Jewish Messiah's arrival. But instead, he becomes the archetype of how deep our sin goes. And he plots to kill Jesus. Herod's unfamiliarity with the text is highlighted on verse 4. It took the assembling of scholars and theologians to be able to point him in the right direction of where the Messiah was. You see, Herod's proximity to the truth didn't mean that he was a person of truth. Herod barely knew the scriptures, but he knew who to talk to. And even though the scribes and the Pharisees, they were correct and their theology was good, Herod still put in place a plot to murder the infant Jesus. And just like Herod, our insecurities can blind us from receiving the new and lead us into evil commitment to the status quo. Herod, along with all of Jerusalem, is aggravated and troubled, reflecting on the Magi, the Easterners. His rule and power is threatened by a new Messiah, and so instead of celebration, he plots murder. Because the kingdom of this world will always be threatened by the kingdom of Jesus. C.J. Rhodes reflects on Christmas and writes this. The birth of Jesus was a dangerous claim that, the cre- that Caesar nor Herod were truly kings of this world or of the Jews. Jesus is always a political threat. The birth of Jesus and the kingdom he represents bring newness. They redistribute power and justice and joy. It flips the power arrangements on their head and challenges the politic of the moment. From left to right, to the White House, to the Senate and courts, the gospel is a perpetual question mark, even today. It's a question mark of their reign. Because the gospel insists that Jesus is the rightful ruler of this world. And the sobering example of Herod is that any human is capable of inconceivable evil in the name of self-interest. Herod's commitment to the status quo and his own power led him to not just miss the person of whom his whole faith is based off of, but led him to unimaginable evil. Once the Magi had departed and refused to give Herod the location of the child, Herod was furious in, in verse 16, it says, He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years and old under. Out of his short-sightedness and anger, out of pursuit of self-interest and maintaining a position, Herod chooses to execute all of the infant boys within a given region. An entire class of boys executed for no other reason than someone in power was insecure. The Bible's unwillingness to overlook and ignore this moment tells us something. Scripture doesn't explain this away. It doesn't downplay it. It doesn't say, hey, it'll get better. It looks evil in the eye, and it doesn't flinch. It's yet another reminder that our Jesus is well acquainted with the suffering of this world. He's the sole survivor of a murderous attack on boys his age. The God that spoke the molecules into motion and separated the land from the sea is the same God who took on flesh and took one of the most vulnerable forms he could, an infant. 
The scandal of Matthew's nativity is the vast different response from the Hebrew king Herod and the eastern seekers, the Magi, to the birth of the infant. Herod, the Jewish king, should have been overjoyed. He should have been setting up celebrations. But instead, he begins plotting. And the sad story of Herod is that we could be Herod. We're capable of that. We're capable of inconceivable evil if we allow our self-interests and our insecurities to rule our lives. But on the other hand, you have the Magi, pagan in every way, foreigners, and they become the vision of the faithful acceptance of the Christ child, departing to their own country by another way. This verse is so interesting. And it almost certainly includes a double meaning for Matthew and his usage here of the change of direction of the Magi. Because the Magi's encounter with the infant Jesus, with the incarnation of God himself, left them changed. They had a new star to follow, a new compass to navigate them. They had encountered the light of the world in the infant named Jesus. A new way home begins by navigating our light by the light of Jesus. If I could have the worship team come back up. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that transformation is possible. It's possible not to end up like Herod. Just like the Magi, we can change our ways. We can go a different direction and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the king that makes all things new. We always end the sermons with spiritual practice, like to give practical things for you to walk away with. And as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was so deeply convicted with a question that I want to challenge you all with. Um, so much so that I want to encourage you if, you, if you journal, if you want to write this down, make notes in your phone. I think it'll be on the screens as well. It's on the sermon guide as well on um, online. But my question to you is, what part of Jesus, what part of the gospel have I, like Herod, taken as a threat instead of an invitation to God? I'll say it again. What part of Jesus, what part of the gospel have I, like Herod, taken as a threat instead of an invitation from God? It's a big question. And it's not one I think most of us will immediately have an answer to. Maybe you do. And if I'm honest, it's a question that kind of scared me when I, when I felt convicted with it, when I thought it. Because it, it forces me to confront my comforts and my habits. It forces me to confront my own desire for control in my life. I have to be honest. I have to be real. I have to see who I'm serving. Myself, the approval of others, or is it God? But guys, it's such a necessary question. Because God wants to do a new thing in our lives. But he can't do it if we're spending our times being threatened by his kingship. He can't do new things if we're putting up walls and saying, God, you can have this, but I want to keep this. You got to let him in. 
you got to surrender. So I want us to just take some time and evaluate our lives. Just identify one area. Let's not do the New Year's resolution where we change everything in our lives. Let's just start with one area that you're trying to rule for yourself instead of surrender to King Jesus. Let's take this question. What part of your life has the gospel been taken as a threat instead of an invitation from God? Let's take this question into this year. Wrestle with it. Wait on the Lord and see what he reveals to you. Thank you.